Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. The countdown to the Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta continues as I interview Kennedy, president of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. The USDA is currently trying to get a new modernization rule passed for conventional poultry production that's meant to sped up the production process in factory farming by eliminating a large percentage of the USDA inspectors. The current method allowed by the USDA has been deemed insufficient and outdated as these factory farms and plants are able to cover up the contaminants, making salmonella rates drop while the same number of people in the U.S. get affected by salmonella every year. But the rationale behind these new rules makes absolutely no sense, except for the fact that the USDA clearly doesn't have the public in its best interest. The easiest way to avoid toxins in poultry, go for pastured chickens. In other federal food safety news, two cantaloupe farmers in Colorado have been charged with criminal activity by the FDA over a listeria outbreak in 2011 that killed 33 people and hospitalized many more. Rarely are farmers struck with criminal charges for foodborne illnesses, but the FDA, under President Obama, has been more aggressive over farmers and food processors for lapses like these. Although I don't have any more faith in the FDA making our food safe than I do with the USDA, I suppose farmers responsible for food contaminations are worthy of criminal charges. But I'm also skeptical about how much this will change things. Next, since New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg took office in 2002, the obesity rate among adults has gone up 25%. Nearly one out of every four New Yorkers is overweight, despite Mayor Michael Bloomberg's massive health initiatives that have been implemented during his tenure, including a ban on trans fats in restaurants. Take this as evidence that bans are not an effective way to make us healthy. You can take junk food away from the people, but the people will just find a different source for it. I see the only way to be healthy is by educating people about transitioning from junk food to real food. Also, the McDonald's Corporation has announced that it's starting a new commitment to serve more vegetables and fruits in most of its major markets. The fast food chain will provide the option of a side salad, fruit, or vegetable in place of french fries on the extra value meals. Okay, I see this as small change, if there ever is such a thing. How many people that eat at McDonald's go there for health reasons? And nothing is said about whether these fruits or vegetables are organic or locally sourced. Plus, they'll still continue to serve meat that's factory farmed. I suppose I should look at any positive change they make as a good thing. But even other fast food chains such as Chipotle are way ahead of McDonald's in terms of changing our food system. Chipotle is far from perfect, but they're at least making an effort to use more sustainably raised meats and organic, non-GMO, and local produce. Plus, 
you can find out which of their ingredients fall under these categories. McDonald's still lacks transparency in terms of what's in their food. And finally, the United Nations is urging agriculture to return to and create a more sustainable, natural, and organic system. They emphasize moving toward local, small-scale farmers and food systems. I've had my issues in the past with the United Nations and food as they've constantly advocated a vegan diet, but a change to local agriculture is something I can completely get behind. They just need to realize that animals are needed to create successful local systems, as there are fruits and vegetables that can't be grown in certain areas, and animals can help fertilize land that's been unused for farming. And now for the main course. With less than six weeks to go until the Wise Traditions Conference, I continue with the speaker series. Along with the Weston A. Price Foundation, another organization that's heavily involved with the conference is the Weston Price's sister organization, Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. The Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund is a nonprofit organization set to protect family farms, artisan food producers, and allow consumers and affiliate communities to buy directly from these farmers and producers without interference from federal, state, or local government. The Farm to Consumer has a big presence at Wise Traditions with their fundraiser breakfast and the fundraiser dinner at the beginning of the conference. This year, the fundraiser dinner is bigger than ever with Joseph Mercola and Joel Salatin participating in a Lincoln-Douglas debate over federal government mandating GMO labels on foods. You also have the opportunity to meet from people, people from the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund at the booth in the exhibit hall where you can learn more about them and donate to their cause. Also, Farm to Consumer President Pete Kennedy will be giving a presentation on legal developments in raw milk access. So here to talk with me about the latest raw milk news and all the wonderful happenings with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund at the conference and beyond is Pete Kennedy. Pete, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Afternoon, uh, Aaron. Good to be here. I very much admire what you do. And we're going to talk in a little bit about what the Farm to Consumer has going on with the conference and some things that you've done just recently and all the raw milk news. But before we do that, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a background about how you got involved with Real Food and the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund? Sure. I joined the Weston Price uh, Foundation back in uh, 2000. And after being a member for a couple of years, I uh, volunteered with Sally Fallon to do some legal work. Uh, the first case, um, the first project she had me on was she was trying to um, get a, uh, a soy product uh, banned from the market. So I, she was working with a lawyer in Washington, I wrote a memo for him. And it was interesting, but the, you know, the project ended after about six months or so. So I went back to her and I said, uh, you know, I'd like to do some more work for you. What do you have this time around? And at that time, there was real no listing on uh, uh, the raw milk laws in the, the country. And raw milk is pretty unique, Aaron, because it's the only uh, food that I know of that is actually banned in interstate commerce, even though it's been around for thousands of years. So uh, just with a, a lot of other foods like meat, poultry, they have the Federal Meat Inspection Act, Federal 
Poultry Product Improvement Act, which pretty much dictate what state regulations or state laws are going to be. But with raw milk, it's pretty wide open. So um, she had me uh, do a research project on the number of just putting compiling a list of the raw milk laws in the 50 different states. And, you know, it took me a while, took me just had other things going and did it slowly when I had time. But um, what happened was after, uh, you know, I finished, um, I started getting calls from people around the country with questions on raw milk. And then within a, um, a year, I think, of finishing the project, uh, first uh, raw milk case um, uh, I worked on was uh, Dennis uh, uh, Stolfus, a farmer down in Florida, had enforcement action uh, taken against him by the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. So I helped out uh, there. You know, he was able to keep on uh, uh, doing what he was doing once things were resolved. Uh, and then, you know, the next uh, year, there are a couple other enforcement actions against the raw dairy farmers I worked on. One was in Ohio with Paul Schmidtmeyer. Another one was in Michigan with Richard Hebron. And both of those ended up uh, well. Um, like Dennis, well, those two farmers had a lot of guts to uh, just fighting the state. And uh, the, the following year was when the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund uh, uh, started up and Sally Fallon was the one who was responsible of, uh, for its startup more than anyone. She saw the enforcement actions uh, taken um, against them. She wanted to set up an organization that would level the playing field and prevent them um, from being uh, uh, bullied by these regulatory agencies. So I was on the original board uh, with them back when they started in 2007 and been working with them ever since. And you were also one of the first Weston Price members, or at least an early Weston Price member. Uh, pretty well, pretty early. I guess it started in 99. You know, actually, um, my local chapter leader at that time was Dennis Stolfus, too. I mean, if he wasn't the first Weston Price chapter leader in the country, he was one of them. So, um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to find out about them at, uh, at the beginning. And yeah, just a great organization. And what type of law did you practice prior to going into stuff for the farm to consumer? Uh, I was in uh, business more. I, I um, really, I had an inactive license and I, I with a Florida uh, state bar and I didn't activate it till uh, uh, 2003 when um, I uh, offered to do work uh, for Sally. So it's really, um, that was the beginning of the legal work I did was uh, uh, 10 years ago, the first project I did for Weston Price. It sounds like a great thing to get into that you're able to use your law background to do something that you're really passionate about. Yeah, it, it's just a lot. I really enjoy it. it. It's like you said, I have a passion for it. I don't know if there's any other area of the law where I, I feel the same way. I mean, just uh, given my family background, it worked out right. I mean, most of the lawyers were on my mother's side of the family and, uh, my uh, father and grandfather were connected in the food business. Uh, so, yeah, it was a, it's a good fit for me right from the beginning and still that way to, today. And there's a lot going on right now with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Of course, there's the upcoming Wise Traditions Conference, but also 
You were recently involved with the Farm to Forks fundraisers at Joel Salton's Polyface Farms. Tell us a little about how that went. Well, it was just a great event, Aaron. Uh, the um, Joel Saladin's been a supporter of ours right from the beginning. And we've had fundraisers. Uh, we've had an annual fundraiser at his farm since uh, 2009. And it, it's grown a little every year, but this year it just really took off. Uh, I think last year, you know, we had maybe 180 or 185 people there. This year it almost doubled. And um, uh, Kathy Raymond, our events coordinator, just did a terrific job. Uh, one of the things um, uh, she did differently this year was uh, she reached out to uh, the paleo community. And I'd say close to a third of the crowd there were uh, paleo folks. Uh, Rob Wolf, who's one of the leaders in uh, the community, was a speaker. Um, at our, uh, the Polyface event Saturday. And this year we also scheduled a couple events in the nearby town of uh, Stanton, Virginia. And he was a speaker at one of the events there too. So um, we need to establish a, a, a big a network as we can, I think, to work for food freedom. And paleo people like Weston Price people get uh, a lot of their food from farms. So um, they're a, a good ally for us. I think so too. There are some similarities and there also are some differences between the paleo and the Western price, but paleo and Western price both value the importance of saturated fat in your diet. Well, they're, they're huge carnivores. I know that. I mean, we had uh, uh, this one event, uh, Kathy, uh, titled Bacon Palooza, and um, uh, just a number of chefs uh, competed and see who could come up with the best bacon dish. And I think we had uh, maybe 250 people at that too. And yeah, the tickets, actually we sold out of the available tickets for both the Palavase event and for that event. And, you know, it's uh, it almost got to the point. I thought people were going to start scalping tickets to it. <laughs> it's probably the first time that's ever happened uh, when a fundraiser is being conducted on behalf of a legal organization. So, um, yeah, it was it was just an enjoyable weekend. And, yeah, hopefully um, Saladins will be willing to do it again next year. With a name like Bacon Palooza, I think, of course, you're going to draw a big crowd. Yeah, it was, you know, it was downtown uh, uh, Stanton. It, it uh, uh, you know, actually, the, the ticket to that was a lot cheaper than the other two events we had. So that that helped. But, um, yeah, it just generated a good buzz. It's... Uh, um, it's good, you know, it's just a good way, I think, of marketing uh, the word out about our organization. Uh, I think we had close to 80 people uh, join as members over the weekend, and that's just we're heavily relying on uh, private individual donations and membership fees to get going, uh, to get um, for our, our uh, revenues. We we obviously get no government funding, and um you know, we take government agencies to court and we get um, uh, not a whole lot of corporate funding. Most of the funding we get from corporations are just from small businesses. So it, it uh, yeah, it was really a shot, shot in the arm the whole week. And as far as um, getting the word out about the organization and uh, raising some revenue so we can continue to carry out our mission statement. 
Andrew Salvin, he's been a big supporter of Power to Consumer for a while, right? Yeah, right, right from the beginning. It's uh, I gave a talk and uh, at the uh, Palaface lunch uh, that that day, and just mentioned that when we get uh, these membership applications, uh, we get a uh, we have one line that says, "Who are you recommended by?" And the individual name we see on that far than any other is uh, Joel Salatin. We get, uh, you know, a number of recommendations from Weston Price. But uh, as far as an individual goes, I just I don't think there's anyone close uh, to Joel Salatin as far as bringing uh, members into our organization. So like you said, this was something they've done before, but this was a lot bigger. And another event that you've done before, but which is going to be a lot bigger, is the fundraiser dinner at the Wise Traditions Conference in November, because this year there's going to be, as I explained earlier, a Lincoln-Douglas debate with Joel Salatin and also with Joseph Mercola. Tell us a little more of what that'll involve. Well, yeah, we actually have a couple events uh, that day. There'll be, um, Joel is uh, conducting a uh, poultry processing uh, workshop during the day, um, which... He actually did that at Mother Earth News last year and just had a, their, their conference in Pennsylvania last year and just had a huge crowd. So we're hoping the same thing happens then. And then the, the night before the conference for the third year in a row, we're going to have a, a fundraiser dinner for the Legal Defense Fund. And the addition to that is that um, usually there's a dinner, then there's some uh, remarks. But this year, after the remarks, uh, uh, Joel Saladin is going to uh, debate uh, Dr. Joseph uh, Mercola on the issue of whether the federal government should mandate GMO labeling. And Dr. Mercola is going to take uh, the pro side, and being the libertarian he is, Joel Saladin will uh, take the side opposing mandatory labeling. And I think uh, Dr. Mercola will be a good debater, but he I know uh, he's going to have to be prepared because uh, Joel Saladin was on the debating team in uh, the college he went to, and he's very good on his feet. I think they'll both be great debaters, and I think that's what's going to make it such a wonderful event is they're both going to give very strong arguments for the sides that they're taking on. I think for people that have attended the conference that haven't gone to the fundraiser before because it is a separate fee— I think this is the one to go to, and I imagine you're going to have uh, by far the biggest turnout for this one. Well, I, I can tell you this, Aaron. We're, you know, it's still two months away, and we're selling tickets every day. It's just, again, Kathy Raymond uh, put this together, and she really outdid herself uh, uh, putting together uh, this event. So I think a lot of people are looking forward to it more well as the time gets closer to the conference. And the thing about all the events you do, the fundraiser dinner and the breakfast, is the food, which is unbelievable. And what I understand, it's pretty much all comes from donations from farmers and individuals. Yeah, I'd say for the most part, that's true. I've always said about the Weston Price Conference, it's one of the few trips you take where you actually feel better returning from the trip uh, than you do when uh, you leave uh, to go on the trip. Oh, I know what you mean, because I try to eat it as healthy as possible when I'm at home. And I've been learning how to cook, but I wouldn't say I'm 
a great cook. I'd say I'm a decent cook. So it can spoil me a little having access to all of this great cook, nutrient-dense food that you have at the conferences. You, you eat well at uh, the Western uh, And actually, our, our dinner uh, last year had a lot of compliments on the dinner. So, you know, it, it's a little easier for us. We don't have to feed as many people at the Western Price uh, Conference meal as, uh, you know, the organizers of the Western Price Conference do with their meals. I mean, I, I think they might be feeding as many as 1,500 uh, people this year. But um, in our, you know, events so far has been smaller, but uh, who knows? You know, we'll, we'll see how many tickets we sell this year, but uh, no matter what the number of uh, people, people attending, food's going to be good there. Do you know some of what's going to be on the menu at the fundraiser dinner? Yes, chicken, I think, uh, a shrimp dish. It'll be um, in accord with uh, foods in the region. I think it's been published already. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but um, yeah, it's going to be a regional fair. That sounds good. And that workshop that Joel Salin is doing before also sounds great. And I'm guessing that's something either for people wanting to go into farming, but also something that a lot of homesteaders could learn as well, as that's a growing area that people are going into. We see how many homesteaders there are going to this Mother Earth News Conference I, I just mentioned in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, last year, there were about 15,000 people there. Most of them were homesteaders. If these homesteaders just sell a little bit, you know, they can consume most of what they grow themselves, but they just sell a little bit. In some states, they can uh, be protected by uh, the Right to Farm Act. So hopefully the case law will just move in the direction of greater protection uh, for people growing their own food. Uh, we had a member in Michigan win a major uh, case up there where um, he had his farm in land that was zoned non-agricultural, and yet uh, the court still ruled that he was uh, protected by uh, the Farm Act. And we actually have another case now, an urban farm in Michigan, where it's someone is, um, you know, has some layers on the property, is, I think, um, has a few uh, meat rabbits too, selling at the local farmer's market. How many states currently have a right to farm act? Aaron, all uh, 50 states have a Right to Farm Act, but the, as far as I know, the Michigan uh, Right to Farm Act is, is stands above uh, the rest of them. It's the one Right to Farm Act where even if you are farming in land zone non-agricultural, you can still be protected. And we had a um, member win a... Uh, like I mentioned, a, a major case last year in a, a suburban area where he was uh, raising uh, livestock on a land zone, uh, non-agricultural, and he would, uh, court held he was protected by the Right to Farm Act. Uh, we've got a case right now with a... Um, Someone who uh, has some uh, layers on less than a quarter of an acre also raises some uh, meat rabbits. And uh, she 
has uh, been charged with violating uh, a local zoning ordinance. So it, it would be great for urban agriculture in Michigan if she was able to be successful in her court case. And I think one of the reasons, at least, that we need more Right to Farm Acts uh, like Michigan, the Right to Farm Acts that are as strong as the Michigan Right to Farm Act, is that uh, right now in this country we're importing way uh, too much food. I think it's over half the food we consume is imported. And you'd really like to see the country become self-sufficient in food production and especially self-sufficient in uh, food production at, at the local level. And if you can uh, get a system where these urban farms and these suburban neighborhood farms are uh, protected by the right to uh, uh, farm act. You're going to be a lot further along uh, becoming self-sufficient food production than you would otherwise. We do need a lot more food grown at the local level and not being imported, not only from other countries, but I had heard recently that most of the food in the U.S. comes from California, which for me, I'm in California, for me and for my colleagues, that may not seem like the biggest deal, but it shouldn't be taken for granted either that the rest of the U.S. is also getting their food from where I am, and that's not very sustainable. No, I mean, when you figure about the big footprint it leaves, just all the transportation, uh, uh, the, the mileage from uh, the, the point of production to the point of sale, just a, a lot of these foods can be grown uh, locally and just more of an effort should be uh, made to, to do that. We just have this, um, you know, cheap food, high healthcare cost uh, system right now, where we've been uh, beggaring, beggaring the farmers and not giving them what they uh, truly should be uh, paid for their uh, for their uh, uh, production, and it's really hasn't uh, worked. You see the health care costs uh, uh, skyrocketing and um, just a lot of the food you get uh, at the supermarket is heavily subsidized anyway and it doesn't favor the small family farm and I think uh, the country's uh, health is paid for it as a result. The country's health is a problem and that goes to another thing that Joel Salton had said in response to how organic food is so expensive. Joel Salton responds, have you priced cancer? Well, and also, you know, you have to factor in the subsidies of uh, conventional food. I mean, you have to factor in uh, the subsidies of um, uh, health care, you know, which there's so many. It just seems like the number of people being affected with degenerative disease caused by poor diet, or at least in part by poor diet, is going up all the time. So uh, you've got... Uh, to get people the right the right to opt out of the uh, conventional food system and uh, be able to participate in the local food system. And that's what our organization is about. We just advocate for a two-tier system where if someone wants to buy from a, uh, a licensed, uh, regulated uh, producer, but obviously they're prerogative. But if they want to buy direct uh, from a unlicensed, unregulated producer, uh, they should be able to as well. And there, there's some 
you know, foods like uncut fruits and vegetables, where that's pretty much been the case for a long time anyway. But just we think it should be uh, across the board because what you have right now with the current food regulations is just these smaller producers can't scale up uh, to meet uh, the, the cost of compliance. And you get some potentially quality uh, producers that can't uh, make a living off it. And just give you an example, I think, of the way things are going with the conventional system. Uh, the law, largest supermarket um, chain in Florida is Publix. And when you go there, you'll see it's, they don't call it Publix Supermarket. They call it Publix Food and Pharmacy. Uh, there's a, a, an area of uh, the store where that uh, uh, contains the pharmacy. So you get people buying food in one area of the store, uh, eventually getting sick from it, and then going to another area of the store uh, to uh, purchase uh, drugs to treat the symptoms of uh, the illness that was brought on, at least in part, by uh, consumption of uh, foods in that uh, supermarket. It's just not a sustainable system. It's not good for the economy or uh, human health. Not good at all. The best medicine, I would say, is eating proper nutrition from nutrient-dense foods. We'll continue to talk with Pete Kennedy of the Farm and Consumer Legal Defense Fund. When we get back from the commercials, we're going to get into issues with raw milk laws. But first, a word from our sponsors. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. I'm interviewing Pete Kennedy, president of the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. The Farm to Consumer is a sister organization of the Weston A. Price Foundation, and they're a big part of the Wise Traditions Conference along with Weston Price. We were talking about their fundraiser breakfasts and dinners and workshops that they've got going on at the conference. And in addition to that, they'll also have a booth where you can get to meet the people from Farm to Consumer and make donations, including buying some of their great t-shirts and buttons and stickers with all kinds of clever things. I asked one that I got last year at the conference, FDA step away from my plate. I love it. And I think that's worth checking out. Another thing that Farm to Consumer will be doing at the conference in Atlanta is President Pete Kennedy will be speaking on legal developments in raw milk safety. So Pete, why don't you tell us now what are some of the legal developments with raw milk? Well, Aaron, I think each year for a while now, you're, you're seeing uh, just more and more states uh, either pass laws to legalize the sale of raw milk or to expand access uh, to raw milk, and this year, uh, this this past year, I think there were close to 20 bills introduced in the state legislatures. Uh, a couple of them passed. Arkansas passed a law legalizing the sale of cow smoke before only sale of goat smoke was legal. Uh, the state of North Dakota passed a law legalizing herd shares. Uh, later, you know, also earlier in the year, I mean, the Michigan Department of Agriculture uh, issued a written policy uh, officially recognizing uh, the legality of herd shares. So that was three positive uh, developments in, in different states in one year. Uh, you had a couple other states, 
Nevada and Maine where raw milk bills went to the governor's desk and were vetoed. Another state, Montana, probably could have passed a raw milk bill, but the terms that made it through uh, committee weren't um, as good as the number of supporters won, so they just decided to uh, try again in a couple of years rather than pass what they had, uh, work to pass what they had through the legislature. So I, I would say right now there's close to 40 states, might even be more than that, that have access to raw milk. And I mentioned earlier that there's this interstate ban um, on raw milk and for human uh, consumption. And I think the way it's, if it continues to progress uh, the way it has, I'd say there's a good chance in five to ten years, uh, you know, that ban really isn't going to matter because there's going to be access in every state in the country, or at least there'll be laws uh, allowing access in every state in uh, the country. So I just see a lot of progress. It doesn't, you know, it's not huge leaps at a time, but it's getting um, uh, progressively uh greater and uh, faster than it has been. I think that's the key is a lot of small steps forming into one giant big step in the freedom to purchase fresh milk. When it occurs in some of these states that they get something going in place but then it doesn't pass, do you look at that as at least positive progress that the issue is coming up within these state governments? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely progress. I mean, you're just seeing more... Um, the state legislators being more receptive to it, I think you've seen the same thing more than any other issue. Uh, the issue of food freedom seems to cross party and ideological lines. And just everyone believes they should have the right to eat what they want. They should have the right to get uh, that food uh, from, from whom they want. And you just see more receptiveness on uh, the part of these legislators to either sponsor or support uh, raw milk bills. And it, you know, wouldn't surprise me at all if there are another 15 to 20 bills introduced in this upcoming legislation. And if you just get a bill or two uh, each session, like I said, you know, somewhere in five to 10 years, it will be access in every state. Has that been the effort that farm consumer has gone about in terms of approaching it individually with states, or is there attempt at also working with the federal government as far as lifting the ban on raw milk being shipped across state lines? Uh, we absolutely do not want FDA regulating raw milk. Uh, no way. It, it's, um, you know, we were actually, we challenged the interstate ban uh, once in uh, several years ago in a federal district court in Iowa. And right now, um, we're representing uh, Organic Pastures Dairy, who's filed a, a citizen's uh, petition with FDA to modify the interstate ban. Uh, and just they, they have their own mindset. They're the agency at the heart of the opposition to raw milk. So we just want to see it regulated on a, uh, a federal level. I mean, excuse me, on uh, the state level, just have, have regulations state by state. I mean, eventually we'd like to see all food 
regulated uh, state by state. And what um, the uh, what you know we're also seeing is that FDA try in the past and still today they try to pressure states to restrict or ban raw milk a- access, and we've seen some concrete examples of either state agencies or state legislatures that um, have uh, ignored FDA, you know, with a couple bills uh, that, that they've sent uh, test- written testimony in opposition to or passed in the law, we've seen a couple occasions where uh, health agencies, you know, we don't know this for sure, but it sure looks like they were pressured by FDA to take action against a producer, and they refused. So I think there seems to be a, a trend where these states are getting uh, more independent in determining what their raw milk policy and raw milk laws are going to be. Like you, I don't have any faith in the FDA being the ones that control raw milk. But the safety of raw milk is important, and I think just simply the idea of the states having it legal is the best way to keep it safe because if it's not legal, then you're going to have underground operations making raw milk, and that's not going to be safe. Yeah, you know, overall, raw milk does have a good track record for safety. There are, um, you know, there are outbreaks occasionally that are legitimately blamed on raw milk. There, there are more outbreaks that are blamed on raw milk where the accusation is not legitimate. But um, there, like I said, the, the raw milk laws are a real hodgepodge. Uh, you have some states where you need a license to sell raw milk. Uh, there are other states where um, uh, you do not need a license. You know, some states where you don't need a license, you can just sell on a the farm. There are a couple, other, a couple of states where you can uh, deliver raw milk as well. And like I said, I... We're in favor of a two-tier system. I mean, there's states out there. I, a couple that come to mind are New Hampshire and Missouri, where you have the option of buying from a licensed producer and unlicensed producer, and I think that should be your right. I think a great way to keep raw milk safe is what Mark McAfee of Organic Pastures has set up, which is the Raw Milk Institute, which will certify farms wanting to sell raw milk. What do you think about that? I... Uh, I'm more in favor of uh, private organizations, yeah, uh, just um, working on raw milk safety than uh, public organizations. I, I know I, I've just seen examples where some of these government agencies would almost rather not regulate raw milk at all uh, than um, uh, have to regulate it. So I think you're, you're going to um, have a better system if you do have private agencies like Romney just uh, another individual who's done a lot of work uh, teaching uh, uh, dairies um, uh, how to produce uh, uh, safe raw milk is Tim Whiteman, who's a friend of our sister organization, the Farm to Consumer Foundation. He's given a number of workshops, uh, especially on uh, the West Coast. So I, I think that is uh, the way to go, just to make sure um, that you do have uh, – uh, people uh, producing safe quality raw milk. And I, I think, you know, just uh, organizations or individuals doing that are needed now more than ever because from what we see, there's just so much demand for raw milk right now that you have a, a lot of these 
smaller dairies getting into it where uh, the producers, um, you know, maybe don't have as much experience as uh, been the case in uh, the past. So, you know, I, I think it has a good track record for safety, but it, it, it's good uh, to have these organizations around to help. Like you said, the FDA would rather not regulate raw milk at all. And I know that as a trend with the FDA in other issues, too, because now there's an issue of the FDA not wanting chickens to be outdoors because of some risk of salmonella that chickens have gotten outdoors. So in some ways, it almost seems like now pastured chickens is the new raw milk. Yeah, I mean, FDA just has a completely different paradigm than the raw milk community. They believe the only good bacteria is a dead bacteria, from what I can see. And this is an agency that has let aspartame on the market. Uh, they've let uh, genetically modified uh, uh, food on the market. And they really don't work for the American people's health. They work for the biotech and the pharmaceutical industries. That's their true constituency. There you go. You've said it right there. There's the products that they let out on the market, which are a number of unsafe products, and yet the one thing that they ban is fresh milk. Right. Yeah. I mean, with with uh, uh, genetically modified plants, they... I know they ignored uh, warnings from many of their scientists and just basically legalized it through something called a policy statement. They didn't even issue a a regulation uh, legalizing it. So it's um, FDA does not look out uh, for the health of the American uh, public when you actually look at their track record, where they've not been uh, effective in uh, promoting the health of the American public. And in addition to states looking at passing bills for raw milk legalization, uh, what are some of the court cases going on defending people with raw milk production and sales with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund? Well, I mean, uh, earlier this year, I think just we had our biggest victory ever, and I think as far as I know, it was the biggest uh, court victory ever uh, for the raw milk movement. And that was uh, uh, the acquittal of um, uh, Vernon Hershberger on three or four criminal misdemeanor charges against him in Wisconsin. It was just uh, Elizabeth Richer, vice president, and Glenn Reynolds, who's a, a veteran litigator in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, just did a, a terrific job. They were helped by a couple of volunteer attorneys, Amy Salberg and Osna Wilson, and it, it was just a, a great victory. It's, I think, one of the things that made it as significant as it was, was just that the uh, uh, state of Wisconsin put a ton of resources into trying uh, to uh, uh, get uh, Vernon Hershberger convicted. Uh, from what I remember, there was something like 7,000 pages of documents uh, they came up with um, uh, produced at uh, the trial. They uh, had someone on their payroll, someone independent on their payroll, who on and off for three years was just looking through uh, Vernon Hershberger's uh, computer uh, that was seized during a, a 2010 raid. And I, you know, people have estimated they spend as much as four or five hundred thousand dollars in trying to uh, convict someone of four misdemeanor charges. Just a Towards that end as well, the uh, judge hearing the case, uh, Guy Reynolds, just 
from what um, most of the people I, I talked to uh, saw was bending over backwards to give the state every possible advantage uh, he could to um, uh, gain the conviction of uh, Hershberger. I mean, as a matter of fact, the only charge he was convicted of was a charge of violating a hold order, which is when they tape uh, someone's coolers or refrigerators and prohibit them from removing food from those. And at the uh, trial, Reynolds instructed the jury that they could only consider uh, two things, uh, Judge Reynolds, wh whether they could whether there was a hold order, which there obviously was, and whether the hold order was violated, well, you know, Vernon Hershberg admitted that he violated the hold order, but um, he, he refused to let them consider whether the hold order was uh, valid, which made no sense in no light of the acquittals because Vernon was acquitted on three licensing charges. So given that he was acquitted on the licensing charges, the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture never should have had jurisdiction to go on his farm in the first place and issue the hold order. So you just had what happened, Aaron, was that a few of the uh, jurors who voted to convict Vernon on the charge actually wrote to the judge uh, before uh, the sentencing hearing. Now, there's about a two, three-week period between uh, the trial and the sentencing hearing on the one charge. And... Uh, asked him, I guess, either to be lenient or just not to uh, lenient as possible or not to punish him at all. So uh, Judge Reynolds said that it never, something like that, it never happened to him in his 12 years on the bench. So it, uh, yeah, it was just an amazing trial of great result. We're appeal, appealing the one uh, conviction right now, and hopefully, um, yeah, that will be uh, struck down by an appellate court. We've been talking about that a lot on this program. At the beginning of the show, we always do the appetizers, which are news stories and real food. And so I know listeners are very familiar with the story of Vernon Hirschberger and his private buying club. Do you think that this case affects not just the way private buying clubs are run in Wisconsin, but overall the U.S., the way private buying clubs can operate? I, I think it can definitely have an effect because it just you're looking at a case where the state put uh, a lot of resources into getting a conviction. So I, I think there's definitely a chance states elsewhere, uh, state agencies could be considering, you know, or might have been considering uh, similar action if it wasn't for the uh, possibly the Hershberger uh, trial. At, at least uh, it would be a factor in their thinking on uh, not to take an action because they just saw all the resources um, Wisconsin uh uh, put into uh, stopping his operation, and they weren't successful in stopping it. So I, I think in, in that sense, it definitely can have a uh, presidential value elsewhere. I just, you know, one of the things we're seeing here, and it's, you know, I, I mean, these things are a snapshot in time. It can always change. But what we're seeing right now is uh, fewer enforcement actions, I think, against raw milk uh, producers the last year or two. I mean, the one state that's an exception to that is Minnesota right now. Uh, they're, you know, going after a, a couple different farmers within uh, criminally within the past year. But overall, um, I don't think they're, uh, I think the regulatory climate uh, has definitely improved in the great majority of states. I think it has too. And I hear it's also 
improved along the issue of transporting the raw milk across the state lines. I've heard that although that is illegal to ship it across, that the federal government has also said that they aren't going to really enforce the law of not being able to take it across state lines. Right. Well, we sued them, uh, challenged the ban in the federal district court a few years ago, like I mentioned. And the the judge, FDA, actually made a, a statement on the record uh, that they had no intention of going after an individual going across state lines. Um, you know, if it was someone, an agent going on behalf of a buyer's club, it's possible they could. Uh, if it, um, you know, it's also possible they could go uh, after a farmer knowingly selling to out-of-state uh, producers, I mean uh, consumers. But what the judge noted in uh, one of his opinions in that case is that in those two situations, uh, there never had been any enforcement action taken by FDA either. The only time they've taken enforcement action is when a farmer is transported uh, raw milk across state lines or farmer or farmer's agent is transported raw milk across state lines to his customers. So, I mean, the law, it, it, it's just a, a bad law. It's been a bad law for the beginning. Um, you know, I, I think one of the ways of telling if something is a bad law is if thousands of uh, otherwise law-abiding citizens violate it. And that's exactly what's happened with this interstate ban. Uh, there, there are thousands of people each week in this country you get milk uh, from across state lines so it's you know we've worked uh with ron paul uh he was in office uh four years ago getting a raw milk bill introduced that would effectively end the ban uh the bill was introduced last session of congress and hopefully um we're working on getting it uh reintroduced this session because the current regulation is uh one that uh, should be taken off the books. And, you know, one way to do that is to get Congress to pass a bill, uh, in effect, overturning it. It really is something that should be taken off the books. In California, we're fortunate that it is legal, so we have access to raw milk from organic pastures and also Clarevale Farms. But I know that had that not been the case, that a lot of members of my Western Price chapter, we would probably go for methods of getting across state lines, and the people in my chapter, they're not hardened criminals. You look at them, they're very much your law-abiding citizens. They're not anyone that you would look at and think, oh, that person's trouble. Right. It, it, it's just FDA has, uh, I think, one of the, um, probably the most significant thing about our, our lawsuit against them was they put their views on about food freedom on the public record. It's just in one document they filed in the case, they said there was no fundamental right for people to feed um, uh, their children uh, the foods they believe best for them, and there was no fundamental right to someone, you know, individuals had no fundamental right to their own uh, physical and bodily health, which is just a, a crazy notion to most of us, but that's, that's uh, what they said on the record. So I, I think um, that woke a lot of uh, uh, people up. And just uh, since that time, I, you know, I, I, I've seen more support uh, politically out there for just ending uh, the ban. The upcoming Wise Traditions Conference, that's going to be held in Atlanta, Georgia. In the state of Georgia currently, 
raw milk is legal only as pet food. Is part of holding the conference there uh, hope to get some movements going to change the state laws? Well, I, I know there was a bill a few years ago, Aaron, in Georgia to legalize the sale of raw milk, but it's, yeah, it's crazy because it, it, in states like uh, Georgia, the, the law is dysfunctional. and in, in every state in the country, it's legal to consume raw milk, but in states like Georgia, here it is, it's legal to consume raw milk, but it's because of the law, it's very difficult to exercise your right, uh, your legal right to consume it. So it's, um, yeah, maybe uh, the conference can be the impetus uh, for the introduction of raw milk uh, legislation. Because, yeah, right now, just Georgia, uh, uh, Georgia state government's costing farmers a lot of business. Because what you have is just a, a lot of people from the state will go to uh, Georgia, I, I mean, to uh, South Carolina to uh, uh, purchase raw milk. And eventually that lost business uh, uh, goes into the millions of dollars for farmers. I mean, we're, we actually see that in most of the, uh, the Northeast. You have all these states, just New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, where the uh, sale of raw milk is illegal, and residents in those states go into Pennsylvania. And, and over the years, it, it's cost uh, dairy farmers in Delaware, New Jersey, and Maryland just millions of dollars because um, people are going to exercise their right to consume it. And if it's, if it's not available in their state, they're going to go elsewhere. Raw milk is a job creator. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, what, what we see with our members, uh, more than um, any other food, raw milk is what brings the consumer on the farm in the first place. Once they're there, they might buy meat, poultry, eggs, produce, but raw milk is what gets them there uh, to begin with. And, it, you know, for people ask why, you know, why has there, have there been so many enforcement actions against raw milk producers, maybe compared to producers of other foods. And it's, I think, at the raw milk set, uh, the center of the competition between uh, the two food systems, just um, the industrial food system and the local food system. I think the same principle holds true with the industrial food system. Raw milk is what brings, I mean, milk is what brings people into the supermarket. You know, it's a perishable item. Once people are there, they'll buy other products. But again, milk, uh, like with raw milk on the farm, is what um, gets people uh, purchasing in the first place. And we're seeing that with some of the big raw dairy companies, such as Organic Pastures and Your Family Cow, when you go to their stands to get their raw milk, they also sell things such as grass-fed ground beef and raw almonds and pastured eggs. So I am seeing that evidence of raw milk getting people to buy other nutrient-dense foods. Well, Pete, we're just about out of time, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find the website for Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund and learn how to donate and possibly become a member. Sure, Aaron. They can go to uh, www.farmtoconsumer.org. Farm to Consumer is all one word spelled out. Uh, they can also call our offices. Our number is 703-208-3276. We're definitely a grassroots organization. Just We, we need uh, the membership support, uh, the private individual uh, donations. Uh, those two things are our lifeblood. So just uh, uh, please, uh, anyone who um, is 
interested in finding out more about her organization or wants to join, uh, uh, contact us. I'll, I'll give you an email address to just at info at farm to consumer.org for anyone who wants to email any questions about uh, the organization. But um, I think, you know, we've had a lot of uh, success uh, uh, this past year. Uh, a lot of work still left to be done, but um, you can see just in a number of areas the uh, uh, right to uh, uh, the foods of our choice, just uh, working uh, the right to um, obtain uh, the foods we want uh, for, from whom we want. You can see uh, progress being made. And to continue the progress, that's where people's donations come in. Pete, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Saturday and Sunday, October 5th and 6th, respectively, the Patchwork Show in Costa Mesa holds its first creative food summit called the Edible Edition. The event will be filled with food and craft vendors, hands-on fermentation workshops, panels from people in various food businesses, and a cultured petting zoo by our good friend Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp. To learn more about the event, check out the Patchwork website at patchworkshow.com. Also on Saturday, October 5th, starting at 10 a.m., the Institute of Domestic Technology is offering its Food Crafting 101 class. You'll learn how to make your own cheese, mustard, jam, and bread. To register for the course, go to the Institute's website at instituteofdomestictechnology.com. And finally, Every Sunday for the month of October, starting this Sunday, October 6th, the Urban Homestead in Pasadena will be holding a social and hootenanny serving seasonal foods from local farmers and artisans, plus some great music. For more information, check out the Urban Homestead's page at urbanhomestead.org. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena's website at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we continue with the Wise Tradition Speaker Series as I interview cholesterol and health blogger as well as scientific researcher Chris Masterjohn. For more information on my guests as well as to listen to past episodes of each show, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Yes, I will.